Colectivo Raíces presenta su programa Espejos de Aztlán Información, Arte, Cultura Bienvenidos Buenas tardes, bienvenidos a su programa Espejos de Aztlán. Mi nombre es Rafael Martínez, and I will be your host for tonight's show. Joining me in tonight's production is Froilán Orozco, and we have the privilege of having a special guest for tonight's show who's visiting Nuevo México. Her name is Jennifer Cárcamo. Jennifer is currently a PhD student at UCLA in Southern California, and she's also a filmmaker. She recently completed and has distributed her film, Eternos Indocumentados, and she is here joining us in tonight's show to talk a little bit more about her film and the process and the themes and subjects behind that film. Jennifer, would you like to introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah. Um, so I guess first and foremost, thank you for inviting me and for having me here to share more about my project. The film itself is something that I have been working on for years, about four years or so it took me to produce it, direct it, film it, and get it out last year. But really the inspiration for the film itself is uh, my own family's history, my family's story. So I'm Salvadoran. I was born and raised in Los Angeles to Salvadoran migrants who came during the Civil War in the 1980s who were refugees but were never recognized as refugees because the United States didn't recognize the Civil War that was happening in the country. So for me, growing up in LA, I had a lot of questions, you know, about why it is that my family migrated here, what my place was as a Salvadoran in LA, in a community that was already predominantly, there was another population, right? And so what does that mean for me, somebody growing up in LA? So um, the project in and of itself started with those questions, right? I have another film called Children of the Diaspora that kind of explores specifically the condition of Salvadoran and Salvadoran diaspora and what the implications were for the war. One of the reasons why I decided to do this film, though, is one of the things that I realized is that even though the Civil War ended in 1992, migration has continued, right? If anything has gotten worse post-Civil uh, War than during the war. So that led to more questions, right? If, if there was a Civil War and the conditions were supposed to change, why haven't they? In that process, right, learning more about my history, I study history at UCLA with the focus in Central America, realizing that these conditions aren't exclusive to El Salvador. They're also the reasons why Guatemalans migrate, Hondurans migrate, why there's massive migration across Latin America, really. And that also has a lot to do with U.S. intervention, right, in, in, in this region, right? That's creating the conditions that are forcing people to migrate, that it's not really a choice, the way that oftentimes mainstream media frames it here. So I had these questions, but I think the real trigger for it was in 2014 when I start, we started seeing images of unaccompanied minors who were turning themselves in at the border, asking for asylum. And then in that moment, Obama was in power. And his solution to that particular moment was to fast track deportations of unaccompanied minors. And myself as a young person at the time, part of the Central American community in LA, seeing that response, a very violent response in and of itself, caused a reaction, right? So I got together with other Central Americans in LA. We together founded an organization called the Human Rights Alliance for Child Refugees and Families, where what we did was really try to create a space for us as Central Americans to organize alongside refugees, right? As a population who came from that history and now is established in LA, what could we do, right? In solidarity with those who continue to come. So that kind of is what started the, the project. Um, the other thing that started happening around the time, right, the Obama administration brought back the practice of family detention. So that was the other response, right? So this was a, a practice that was debunked during um, Japanese concentration, right, where they said that this is illegal. You can't incarcerate, especially children, right? But in 2009, uh, Obama brought it back. And so we start seeing the expansion of mothers with children being detained solely because they're asking for asylum. So we started visiting the mothers in detention, building a relationship 
relationship with them, some of them who had been detained for up to a year while they waited for their asylum cases to be processed. And I got to know them, right? I got to know what, what they were doing. And a lot of them reminded me of my mom, you know, my grandma who came in the 80s, right? You would think that things have changed 20 years later, but they haven't. Uh, my mom, too, was separated from my grandma when they crossed the border in 85, right? My mom spent her Christmas and New Year's in a detention center, a shelter for unaccompanied minors. And to see that happening in 2016, 2015 was really shocking to me. So the documentary in and of itself kind of focuses on those testimonies, right? Recently arrived Central American refugees who are going, who have been incarcerated here in the U.S., the reasons why they migrated, but then also looking at the conditions in Central America. So I actually traveled to Central America. I went to El Salvador. I went to Honduras. I went to Guatemala. I interviewed people who are involved in social movements on the ground over there to kind of get their analysis of what's happening over there, what they're doing. And that's the other big part of the film, right? Not just uh, refugee testimonies, but also kind of highlighting the fact that there is an ongoing struggle in Central America to change the conditions, right? I feel like in mainstream media, there's often a misconception that people are just coming and that they're not really doing anything to change. And that's far from the truth, right? If we know anything about Central American history is that we've been fighting a long time, right, to liberate ourselves from the same systems that continue to oppress us. The problem is that those movements are continuously repressed, right? Activists, organizers on the ground over there are constantly at risk, are targets of the state, right? In Guatemala alone, this year, there has been 18 environmental activists who have been killed for their work trying to take back lands that were originally of the Maya people, right? So it's these conditions that are also forcing people to, to migrate. And that's one of the things that I try to highlight in the film, that it's much more complicated than what you see in mainstream media here and that we should be paying attention to people on the ground here and over there. Definitely. Thank you for giving us this great uh, overview of what the film was. And we got a chance to screen it for an immigration lecture series as part of the UNM Chicana and Chicano Studies uh, lecture series. And one of the things that really struck me about the film besides a lot of the great topics that we'll come back to that you just touched upon, is the fact that you chose to have this, the the film in its original a Spanish language with English subtitles. Una de las cosas que es muy importante para nosotros aquí en Espejos de Aslan es ser bilingües y promover esa, nuestra cultura, nuestro lenguaje. ¿Nos puedes hablar un poco acerca de por qué uh, esa decisión de, de mantener el español y mantener el lenguaje y incluir lenguajes indígenas como parte mm -hmm. de, de tu um, película. Yeah. So, I mean, all of the interviews were done in Spanish. A majority of them were done in Spanish because that is their first language for most of them, right? Not all of them. I think for me, going to Central America, doing the interviews, um, it was important to do it in a language that they felt comfortable speaking in. Refugees también, you know, when they were here, oftentimes when they were received by ICE or Customs and Border Control, they don't speak Spanish. Maybe some of them did, but they weren't able to communicate their needs, right? Or to communicate um, the reasons why they came. And so that's what we did, you know? We tried to just be open to hearing what their stories. And for me, it was really intentional to do that. My first language was Spanish. Even though I started school, once I started school, I remember my mom got in trouble because I didn't speak English. And so she started speaking to me only in English. So then that became my dominant language. But I always kept it in mind to always remember my Spanish. But in, in that process too, right, like I didn't go intentionally. For example, the, the, the interviews that I did with the Maya migrants from Guatemala, I, I didn't necessarily go looking for Maya speakers, right? I met them in different instances and they happened to be Maya. 
And when I first met them, they spoke to me in Spanish. And it wasn't until I started talking to them that they're like, this isn't my first language. This is actually my third. So some of the youth that I interviewed, in the middle of the of the interview, they started talking about when they were talking about their experience. And I didn't include this in the documentary. I didn't have time. But one of them, for example, shared that they didn't learn Spanish until they were in a detention center here. That their language was Maya, a Maya Quiche language from Guatemala. And that it wasn't until they got here and they were placed in a refugee shelter with others Central American youth that they felt that they had to learn Spanish. So they learned Spanish while in detention here. And then after being released from detention, right, a few of them got asylum. Starting the school in LAUSD, they had to learn English. So they're trilingual, right? Within the process of their migration experience, they adopted two different languages. And that's something that you don't hear, right? Especially within LAUSD. LAUSD has been terrible at meeting the needs of migrant youth, Spanish speakers, let alone youth who speak their native language, right? And that's something that I didn't, I, I learned in the process of doing this, right? My first language was Spanish. And I think it means something completely different when it's not even that. So for me, it was really important. So when I, in the middle of the interview, when I realized that talking to them, that they were even struggling to speak Spanish. So I asked them if they felt more comfortable to introduce themselves in their native language, and they did. But that was the only part. But for me, it was really important to include that because I feel like a lot of people assume certain things, even about Central Americans, right? That we all speak Spanish. And that's not the truth either. Especially in the context of Guatemala, the, the migrants coming are predominantly Maya because they're the ones that are being directly impacted by transnational companies who are going in and displacing them for natural resources in ways that other populations might not within the context of Guatemala. This is also true for Honduras. There's a large Lenca community. In El Salvador, the, the Nahuatl community is a lot smaller, and that's due to years of genocide, right? Ethnocide, where even though there are Nahuatl speakers, they don't speak the language anymore for fear of persecution. But it's extremely diverse, right? The Central American community is extremely diverse. And for that reason, I wanted to I, I don't speak Maya, so I couldn't do the interview in their languages, but I did try to give them a space to at least share something that they felt comfortable sharing. Claro que sí. Y parte del proceso, or part of the process that, again, I, I really appreciated about your film, is forefronting certain marginalized communities that we often don't hear about in mainstream media in regards to migration, immigrants, and refugees. And part of that was that you forefront stories of, as you mentioned, indigenous individuals, but also trans, queer individuals, student movements, and ideas of patriarchy, and many of these themes that often get swept under the rug. So can you t share a little bit about some of those experiences and how did you go into these different spaces to find these different interviews? And what was that process of really forefronting these stories at the forefront of your film? Yeah. So a, a big part of the, the theme of my film is really focusing also on gendered violence, right? Um, and the fact that that's a big reason why, especially women and LGBT communities flee Central America, right? Patriarchy is real. It's very entrenched in the structures and it affects populations in different ways. For me, it was really important to include trans migrants and refugees, in particular because I also identify as queer and I am very familiar with a lot of the sentiments that exist around queerness, about being somebody who identifies not as heteronormative and, you know, dealing with that, you know, within your family, family acceptance, all of these things. So in the process, I'm also an organizer, right? So most of the people that I that I interviewed in my film are people that I met organizing. The, the two women who come out in my film, the two trans women are people that I actually met in the process of organizing, right? Like, for example, one of the interviewees, her name is Alejandra Stacy Salvadoreña. I actually met her at an organizing meeting to plan for an action. 
detention, right? Where we were going to go to the Santa Ana Detention Center to protest the fact that they had created this detention center uh, specifically for trans women. The idea was, right, that trans folks in particular who were coming and are coming in large numbers within these detention centers they were also feeling like they weren't accepted right a lot of them they were placed in detention centers that they didn't identify with right so for example these trans women were put into men's facilities and they weren't obviously you know they weren't comfortable there one being in detention and two being with men so instead they were put in solitary confinement and as a response to that they opened another detention center just for trans women and so what we were saying is like the, the point is not not that, but that they shouldn't be incarcerated in the first place. So I met Alejandra Stacy, Angela at protests like this, and I remember thinking, like, how is it they had just been released from detention? How is it that you're still here? And their, their answer was very simple, right? We still have friends who are in these detention centers. We don't think that anybody should be in these detention centers, regardless of gender identity, sexual orientation. Like, we shouldn't be treated in this way. And so for me, that was really empowering to hear that, you know, considering having getting to know them and how much they struggled, right? The type of violence that they were fleeing in Central America only to be found with more violence here. It's layered, right? It's layered in ways that we don't sometimes think about. As a also somebody who identifies as a cisgender woman, right? Like dealing a lot with that in my own family and community, right? It's like how do we actively speak out against these injustices? And to see people do it, I think for me, was also really empowering and really important to highlight in the film. Claro que sí. You're listening to Espejos de Aslan. My name is Rafael Martinez, and I am your host. I'm joined tonight by Florlan Orozco, and we've been listening to an interview with filmmaker and PhD student Jennifer Carcamo. And she's been talking to us about the process and the themes that have gone into her film, Eternos Indocumentados. Moving forward, Froilan, I know that you also had a great question that really got Jennifer talking about some of the process that went into her film. Would you like to phrase that question for us tonight? Yeah, I think it's a question that had to deal with your own self-reflective process in producing this uh, documentary and also... Yeah. So f for me, it's, it's still a process. I think I'm still trying to process everything that I went through because it's very personal. I'm a product of this history. My family went through it and maybe they went through it in the 80s. But to see it continue to happen, I think is something that is really hard to process and to deal with. But I think for me, it's been important to do it because it's also, I think, been working on this project in particular has also been very healing in the sense that I feel like by doing these interviews, giving a space to folks to really share, when sometimes you don't get asked these questions anymore, right? Sometimes people are scared to open up these stories. There's a lot of trauma in the Central American community, a lot. And I think we haven't been given the opportunities to process it, right? Because it's been conditions after conditions that have forced us to kind of move on, e including like the Civil War, for example, that the discourse immediately after the Civil Wars in El Salvador and Guatemala were to just move on, right? Like, let's just forget that it happened. Let's just move on and try to live our lives. There was no justice for any of the atrocities that were committed during the, the Civil Wars. And we were just expected to move on from that, right? The same thing is happening right now, right? With all of the things that are, the, the structural violence that's taking place, you come here met with more structural violence, you're let out of detention and you're expected to just move on. And clearly there's things that we need to deal with on a personal level to really move on beyond those traumas. So that has been something that I've reflected on a lot, you know, like what does it mean for us to heal, right? What does it mean for us to face those traumas that can be really hard to revisit um, and to work through? 
Um, but I think it's also a lesson that as a community we need to address, right? And so I hope that that's also something that people get out of my film, that we're still in this process. And it's going to take time. It's going to take time. I think I have a, a, a follow-up question. Um, thank you for that. I just wanted to know in terms of like the selection of, of the media or the medium that you selected to sh show these stories and uh, what kind of thought process did you go through in terms of navigating that as well? Do you mean like the, the documentary the, film, the film in general, like why film? Yeah. So film is something that I've loved for a very long time. Um, I see it for me. I see it as a tool. Right. I see it as a tool, as a way to create our own narratives, right, to highlight our own narratives in ways that mainstream media has been very ineffective at doing. So I, I actually got my, my master's in documentary film and history from Syracuse University. So I had training in film production. However, in that process, I also realized that I'm not a big fan of the film industry. And so while I love film as a medium and I see it as a tool to get out these stories, I also think that sometimes, you know, it, it can be co-opted, right, um, by certain industries, depending on like what type of narratives are trying to be reproduced. So for that reason, for me, it was really important to do this independently, to not feel compromised in any way to tell the stories that I wanted to, to tell, which is different, right? It, it was challenging because I worked on this project. Because I was completely independent, I worked on it after work, in between classes, on the weekends. When I accrued enough vacation time, that's when I went to El Salvador, you know? It wasn't something that I had a clear timeline on the way that some filmmakers do, right? Because that they dedicate uh, full-time jobs to this. I did not have that privilege or that luxury. But that was important to me because then I knew that the story that I was telling is the story that I wanted to tell, not that, you know, a certain foundation or a certain company wanted to tell. But I think you, you make those negotiations, it's, it's a lot harder because you don't have the same support. Even like if you see the, the, the rolling credits, uh, most of the people who helped me with this project were completely volunteer basis. I did get a small grant to be able to finish it and I used that grant to buy the equipment, right? my cameras. I got my cameras through that. And then to also compensate the refugees um, for their time, for sharing their story, for being open to, to sharing some of the stuff that they shared. But production itself, like I'm not making anything out of it. All of it is going back to the, to the Human Rights Alliance. But that's also why I did it, you know, because I feel like it's important for these stories to get out. That speaks a, a big part to your, you know, organizing outlook and your, idea, or your ideas of social justice. And one of the things that really comes to the forefront, as you kind of grounded earlier, is this idea of a call to action, right? But an idea that, as you just mentioned, kind of with your own training and your own background, that we all play a role in this and we all have different roles that we could go ahead and take this up subject matter. You know, for us, it looks like maybe a radio program. For other folks, it, may, it, it looks different. So. What is that outlook in terms of some of the organizing experience that you have in terms of messaging for young people who are looking to get involved in um, organizing in different aspects of their community? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, that's really one of the main messages I hope that people get out of my film, right? It is a call to action, right? Um, like I mentioned previously, part of it is like really highlighting the, the, the struggle and the organizations that are doing important work in Central America. There's also great work being done here, right? Um, it's sometimes hard to, to work within these spaces, right? Um, but I do think it's important for us to find our place in the movement, right? And that can mean anything for anybody, right? I'm based in LA, so my I'm very familiar with what the organizing scene is like there and where I can contribute to in that movement in that particular place. But that might be different for people here in New Mexico, right? I'm not as familiar with the conditions here. But I would hope, you know, that um, especially for my generation, right? I do think it falls on my generation to figure out ways to be a part of the movement and to support those who are less fortunate 
fortunate than us, right? While we ourselves are dealing with our own things, there's other people that are dealing with other things. And I think if I've learned anything from organizing, especially within the Central American community, I'm a Salvadoran, so my first space of organizing was actually student organizing. I worked with an organization called USEO, La Unión Salvadoreña de Estudiantes Universitarios. And in that organization, one of the things that we talked about and emphasized, right, was the need for solidarity. For us in that movement, in that struggle, it was the liberation of the Salvadoran people. But we also talked about how our liberation is tied to everybody's liberation, right? We are not free until everybody's free. And I think that, you know, there's different ways that we can continue to do that work wherever we're at, right? And to really share that message of solidarity and to help uplift each other, right, in different ways. So, yeah, I hope that that's the message that, that people take away from the film. Claro que sí. Y una de las cosas que también me impactó mucho de, de la, del documental, one of the things that really impacted me about the documentary as well was just the, the music, the art right that comes out of it even though it's kind of at the background it's still somewhat in the forefront nos puedes hablar un poco de la música de la selección de la música just the music uh, we do love to play music here at, um, in Espejos and in our Raíces show can you tell us a little bit about what went into that yeah thank you so much for asking that I feel like um, people mentioned the music but nobody really asked you know like what was the thought process behind that so actually the, the the soundtrack is with the exception of a couple of songs is completely original it was produced by a good friend of mine his name is James Diaz who's actually a Guatemalan diasporic youth who lives in Riverside California he produced most of the soundtrack for it and he actually donated his tracks to the film because you know he also part of the Guatemalan diaspora in, in the United States right his family went through something similar so this was his way of like paying it forward right he's a musician he does music he does tracks and he's like this is a great project you know and then again I think he's a good example of like you know wherever you're at you know use what you can do right cultural production is important for the movement and he donated his tracks to the film so that's a lot of that and then they also he also was a part of a band called Pepinos Eclecticos they produced the last song in the film um, which is Poema de Amor so Poema de Amor is like kind of like the, the guiding el hilo conductor of the film right the kind of inspiration behind it and like kind of makes it a little bit poetic the original it's a poem it's, it's originally a poem by Roque Dalton who's a, a famous Salvadoran literary writer very famous throughout Latin America the original poem was turned into a, a song by a Venezuelan band called Los Guarawau and so what James did with his band Pepinos Eclecticos is they did another remake of this but this time with a woman's voice so this is the only version of that song that's actually sang by a woman or sung by a woman and that was intentional that was also intentional right going back to this idea of like uh, gender right gendered violence right and like the highlighting of not just men but women you know in in the movement so that was probably one of my my favorite versions of the song and you can't find it online I might share it we're still in the process of figuring that out the other song that I think hits home with a lot of people is the song that's sung with the montage of the news articles it's produced by it actually wasn't originally meant to be a, a song the way that it was. It was actually an himno that the caravan sang in May 2018 um, to kind of um, encourage each other to keep going. Right. And it it was sung by a refugee, Hondureño, who was a part of the caravan. And people liked it so much that they recorded it and they turned it into a, a song. So and they did it with like super basic things, like not in a radio studio, right? Like they use their phones. And I heard it for the first time when I actually went to an action on the border and they were singing the song, like the whole caravan was singing the song. And it really impacted me to hear it from them and then later to hear it recorded. And I asked him, I was like, is it okay if I use this for my film? So 
basically what I'm getting at is all of the music in the film comes from the people themselves, right? Either in diaspora or from the caravans, the recent, the recent caravans. Even the opening song. The opening song is actually an Honduran refugee who was detained in Karn's detention center. When I interviewed her, one of the things that she mentioned is that one of the ways that they would, um, so they organized three hunger strikes when they were in detention. And ICE tried to intimidate them to stop the hunger strike, right? And it was like 70 mothers who were in these detention centers on hunger strike hadn't eaten for a week. And the way que se daban animo was to sing. And the, the song, the opening song to the film is one of the songs that they would sing para darse ánimo to continue the hunger strike. And I heard this song and I and it's it, it's actually a religious song. So they kind of also use that, right? Because that's a, that's a big part of the, the culture to give themselves ánimo. So essentially all of the music comes from the people um, themselves, which is why you won't find it anywhere else. Wow, well, how powerful thought process and like you said, poetic. Ultimas palabras, last words, anything that maybe we didn't cover or shout outs that you want to give. Any final words we always leave with our guests? Yeah, I mean, in terms of shout outs, thank you to you, Rafa, for inviting me to, to this radio show to share. Um, also, a shout out to, to Gustavo and Nati, um, who invited me. Um, I met them a couple years ago. They were they were there when I was working on the film. And so um, after the, the production of the film, they invited me to share it here. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, like I said, um, because it's completely independent, I, I don't have a distributor. So really, the only way that this gets out is through word of mouth. And this, all the screenings have been through invitation. Where can folks find the film? Um, so you can find it online. It's eternosindocumentados.com. Um, it's available on Vimeo. Anybody can access it. And as far as uh, getting you out um, to do screenings or potential events, where can they uh, contact you? Uh, yeah, so the film website has a, has a form where people can submit requests for film screenings, and then we'll get back to folks depending on um, their suggested dates, times, etc. Bueno, pues, muchas gracias. We've been joined by Jennifer Carcamo, who uh, is filmmaker and student produced the film um, Eternos and Documentados. Again, visit her website to find more information. Muchas gracias. Um, your Raíces show is next, and you can find this show and other shows in our two-week archive, as well as in our Espejos de Aslan podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Muchas gracias. Stay tuned for your Raíces show next. <laughs>